0: Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode four, some kind of in-betweener. August 27th, 1973, a beautiful party. The household went all out. They baked real chocolate cupcakes, as opposed to carob, a carrot cake, and invited what seemed to be half the town. I spent most of the day sulking and pacing back and forth between my bedroom and the living room like the caged lion that dwelled just beneath my skin. I wasn't trying to be mean or ungrateful. I just didn't want to be the center of attention. But that's not how it looked. And when the party formed a circle around me and started singing the happy birthday song, I threw a temper tantrum. Bob got the brunt of it as we stood face to face with him asking me to calm down and try to enjoy myself. I gave him snide looks and hurled belligerent insults as if he were the mother I could finally stand up to, all the while nibbling on a cupcake that I was holding in my hand. He stood calm and firm until the minute of no return, and then his blood boiled over. In front of the whole birthday party, he smacked the cupcake right out of my hand and it went flying across the room. This was not normal. Bob never showed any emotion and he never lost his cool. I had really pushed him this time, and now I was scared, but more than anything, mad at myself. I backed my nasty attitude right up against the wall and wondered why I was such an asshole when I didn't want to be. I ran to my bedroom, slammed the door, and the party was over. Gordon realized that my behavior was spinning out of control so he decided that he needed to spend more time with me, although I would have preferred that he didn't. Gordon's aura was too big and it intimidated me. He was like the famous person that you were glad you knew but didn't want to hang out with because really, what would you talk about? I preferred it when he was off doing his thing and I was doing mine. I just wanted him to take care of me from a distance, like he had been. But I had no choice in the matter, and our time of togetherness came on a rainy day, which didn't bother me because I liked the gray. I was nervous, and the rain had the potential to soften the edges of what could be an awkward day. To have Gorton's focused attention was intense, but I was surprised to find that it was also warm like the sun, and you could be glad that it was shining on you. Like most people, I had built him up in my mind to be some mythical creature, but hanging around in the kitchen making tuna melts proved to me that he was nothing more than a guy a guy who obviously had restaurant experience because he made the best damn tuna melts I had ever eaten. He was an overly animated character, so watching him slice, dice, and layer was better than any cartoon. He was spastic in the kitchen, and I was enchanted by his sloppy style. He turned the mundane into the marvelous while cleverly sneaking in questions that I had never thought to ponder. Questions like, what are your dreams? What do you love? Do you love yourself? As anyone my age would do, I looked at him like he was crazy, but only because I needed time to sort out the answers. Gorton didn't cure me of me, but it was a nice day and not the disaster I had anticipated. I did find a way to calm myself and pass big chunks of time without getting into trouble. I did what my dad used to do when I was a kid, I took up residency in a rocking chair in front of the hi-fi stereo in the living room, and I listened to every single album that Cleveland Street owned. Musically there were a lot of hits and misses, but the real joy was in the back and forth motion of the chair. And I rocked myself into a world where nothing was complicated, and the only thing I could feel were the notes of the music and the isolation. I would rock for hours until my back hurt, my butt was numb, and I was completely exhausted. When the glaze cleared from my eyes and the needle lifted from the album, I would feel the discomfort of the encroaching world around me. There were people wandering around the house and I needed privacy to shake off the feeling of shame that now came with rocking. I didn't want to admit it, but something seemed strange about it, like I was doing something wrong or weird and I was embarrassed to have people watch me. The rocking was embarrassing, but not the music. We didn't have a television, so our house was filled with it all the time. When someone wasn't strumming a guitar on the front porch, the hippie classics were playing on the stereo. In general, I liked all kinds of music. You could find at least one good song on most albums, but not every album was worthy of rocking to. Cat Stevens, who looked very much like Bob Tarlow, had an album out called Tea for the Tiller Man. He knew how to fill the mellow songs with a constant backbeat and sad, rich emotion. There was nothing cheesy about this album, and I never felt stupid when the song Father and Son would threaten to drive me to tears. From the very first pick, then strum, of the guitar strings, the gooey internal core of me would sink from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. The sensation would tingle all the way down, and I knew I was in for something big. My belly would well up with all the tears that I was never able to cry and the pressure of those tears intent on crushing or suffocating me. As Kat sang out the sun's anger, pain, and frustration, a strong, hard emotion would beg to release itself from the corner of my eye, but I refused to let it go. Instead, I just rocked harder, back and forth, back and forth, Filling every single note of music. I, have to go away. I know I have to go. Father and son shattered all the emotional puzzle pieces of my soul and left me standing alone in the debris. The only way to put myself back together again was by listening to the song Our House by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. A very, very fine house indeed, which is exactly what Gorton had created for me. Gorton Withers in Debt. The Way It Is had left Gorton's finances in a shambles, and although he worked several different jobs, they were all of the helping kind and not the paying kind. Sue had a plan. She was going to organize a benefit concert in the style of Woodstock, and all the local bands would play. On the day of the concert, the weather was unfriendly, foggy and raw. Gorton's best friend Peter was assigned to the role of master ceremonies at which he proved to be a morose disaster. He emceed as if he were at a funeral, which he was sort of, but today people just wanted to have fun and forget. The demise of the way it is was a harsh reality for the community and it coincided with a sad and ominous feeling that was rippling through the country. We, the people, were living out the beginning of the end, the last of the true hippie spirit. Peter's condolences were understandable, but they were also a drag, and people begged Sue to get him off the stage as soon as possible. She asked one of the other volunteers to take over the microphone, But he wasn't much better. He had stage fright, so instead of taking the stage, he sat Indian-style under a table and made the announcements from there. He spoke softly, just above a whisper, barely louder than the raindrops threatening to fall. But it was a good day for me. I didn't have the worries just the fun of going backstage, eating ice cream sandwiches, and hearing all my favorite bands play. It was a good idea, this benefit concert, but there wasn't any money made, and as it turned out, the cost to insure a large gathering of hippies outweighed any and all of the profits. I vacillated between loving the hippies and hating them. They wanted me to step out of my cocoon and expose myself, which I found intimidating and possibly detrimental to all. I needed to know what the rules were, or if there were any. When I lived with Diana, there was a condition to every step, and life was almost lived easier at attention or confined to a very narrow existence. My life with the hippies was all over the place and the most obvious rules were often open for debate. I was beginning to find that steering the reins of freedom was almost as difficult as enduring confinement. It seemed that no matter where I lived, life was a steady stream of paradox, pitfalls and contradiction. But the difference was fun. And I'd take my freedom with the hippies over Diana any day. I did fantasize about being a straight kid, and I thought I might like to be Penny Wheeler, a girl whose tanned and flawless skin glowed with wealth and fancy lotion. She was in my class and she had it all. Long straight hair with never a strand out of place, freshly pressed clothing every single day, popularity and good posture. She was of course the teacher's pet and I doubt that she ever got sent home with a note requesting that she wear a training bra. She didn't need one. Her body was perfectly proportioned, and her age-appropriate bosoms were hardly a distraction to anyone. I stared at her all the time. She thought I was weird. I was weird. I felt like an outcast everywhere I went. I wasn't hippie enough, and I wasn't straight enough. I was just some kind of in-betweener, a freak without a name. Strangely, I felt the most comfortable at Billy's house. It was the kind of place where stuff didn't matter, and although his parents did have a lot of rules, they never seemed to notice or care when we broke them, unless we really crossed the line. They were too busy dealing with the basics, eating, sleeping, and getting the dogs to stop barking. When we did make them mad, we would hide right under their noses in the hoard and rubble of their possessions. We'd jam our bodies into the towers of junk that created the inner lining of their home and listen while they called for us to come atone for our transgressions. Our giggling always gave us away as we pressed our baby fat bodies inappropriately into one body, which gave Billy the thrill he was looking for. My punishment was to be sent home, a cakewalk to what Billy got. His mother was far too fat to get all worked up, but his dad had a temper the size of his beer belly, and that's when Billy got the belt. As with my siblings, I felt I could better handle the punishment, and I would have if I could have. Billy was sensitive, and the beatings left their mark. He hid from me for days afterwards, embarrassed when he shouldn't have been. And once I saw him again, he was a harder, angrier version of himself. It was the school librarian who gave me a chance to check out The Straight Life. She really took a shine to me because I read so many books. She invited me to come spend the night at her house, which seemed a bit strange, but I had a strange life, so I agreed. I really liked her, and I was curious about the other side. She had several children, mostly boys, and they lived in a house that was neatly ordained, with immaculate and matching furniture. When we sat down to dinner, I took my cues from the family and bowed my head as the father said a prayer, giving thanks for the food and my company. Sitting through the longest dinner in the history of dinners, her family was very kind, but I was starting to feel uncomfortable and rather bored. There were so many children recounting the events of their day that I thought I was living out a scene in the Waltons. My librarian's family was just as syrupy as the Waltons, and when I occasionally glanced at my reflection in the finely polished dining room table, I became aware of how rough my edges were. I tried to be soft and normal because I didn't want to stand out, but this was rather impossible with the frizzy hair that created a halo around my head. After dinner, we went to a movie, which was a great relief. I sunk deep into the darkened theater, relieved not to speak or be noticed. The morning was more of the same, and I was itching to get home. I was tired of being on my best behavior because it wasn't coming naturally. My librarian's life, the straight life, seemed neither here nor there. It was okay, but I sure didn't want to live it. I could feel the comfort and stability, but the color was drab and dull. I knew I would suffocate in such a sterile and monotonous environment. As messy as life could be at Cleveland Street, it was also vibrant, lively, and completely unpredictable. A new adventure every day. I had thought I wanted to be a straight kid, and maybe if my family had stayed in Cleveland, I would have been. But it was too late now, the bus changed all that, and I was much better suited to the hippies than to the straights. Being on my best behavior had become nearly impossible. I was a monster of insolent proportions, and my emotions were raging out of control. I didn't even recognize myself anymore, and I knew if I were living with Diana, I would be getting my ass kicked every single day. My mouth spewed and spit fire just as frightfully as the long ago dragon that roared uncontrollably out of my closet the night of the Cleveland fire. One well, piece is your friend, she said. She said You're alone with yourself She said On a calm summer's day There's stars and trees